Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast episode contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're going back to Tuesday the 14th of August 1956. That was the day that Sydney police learned the truth about the double bombing murder that had rocked and shocked the city overnight. Edward Bonaventure Heffernan Brocci was born in Fitzroy, Melbourne in July 1905. His dad John worked as a fruiterer. But his mum, Ada, she really had her work cut out for her. By 1905, she'd already had five children, including Elsie, born in November 1903, and she'd go on to have three more after Edward. So, nine kids in all. Despite John's commitments and the fact that he was 44 years old, he enlisted as a private in the first AIF in mid-September 1914. That was just six weeks after the war broke out, and he embarked for the Middle East three days before Christmas in 1914. John survived Gallipoli physically unscathed. His example of dutiful service, an older married man with a big family doing his bit, was used by a speaker during the first Anzac Day commemorations the following year. John's war wasn't over yet, though. He fought on the Western Front and survived a gunshot wound to the right arm in October 1917. John returned to Australia in early 1919, and it was around this time that he and his family sat for a studio portrait. The Brochies were a prosperous, smart-looking bunch. John wearing his sergeant's tunic, slouch hat on his knee, with Ada by his side, and surrounded by all their children. At camera left sat Elsie, by then a young woman, and standing behind her was her younger brother Edward, handsome in his suit as he entered adolescence. Edward's older siblings were clever. Richard and Ada would go on to be chemists and run a pharmacy together, while brother Leslie was also a chemist. Edward went to Melbourne High School and he proved similarly smart. He graduated with a medical degree from Melbourne University in 1928. This achievement was all the more admirable given that he suffered a speech impediment that was severe enough to rule him out for military service. The newly minted doctor moved to South Australia where he practiced medicine at Adelaide hospitals. In 1937 in Melbourne, he married Irene Gladys Johnston and they'd go on to have three daughters, Marsha, Heather and Lynette. In 1940, Edward and Irene moved to Sydney with him working as Assistant Medical Superintendent at St George Hospital until 1945. After that, Dr Brocci left to establish his private practice in Kingsgrove in South Sydney. Edward, Irene and the girls also had their home nearby. Edward was a non-smoker, non-drinker, active in the community and a devout and beloved Methodist lay preacher. While the bulk of his family was back in Melbourne, his sister Victoria also lived with him and Irene, and she worked as his nurse and receptionist. Edward also had his sister Elsie living just a few hundred yards away. 
1929 in Melbourne, Elsie had married, scientifically minded, Henry Edward Foster. While her brother found it difficult to speak, Elsie's new husband was to suffer gradual hearing loss. But like Edward, he didn't let this get in the way of his career. In 1930, Henry and Elsie moved to Newcastle in New South Wales, where he worked as a metallurgist. By the end of the Great Depression, they were living in Sydney's Inner West, with Henry employed as an engineer. During the Second World War, they'd live in the city, with Elsie working as a secretary, and after that, they'd move south to Kingsgrove. They had a neat brick bungalow in Vivian Street, near her brother's home and his medical practice. Elsie worked with Henry, assisting him in his consulting engineering business. Then, in mid-1956, Victoria Brocci returned to Melbourne to get married. So, Elsie took over her role as Edward's nurse and receptionist. On the evening of Monday the 13th of August 1956, at around 5.30, Dr Brocci parked his pale blue 1955 Plymouth in its usual spot in Patterson Avenue, Kingsgrove, and walked the hundred or so yards to his surgery. Inside, he and Elsie finished up the day's business. At 7.15, they walked to his car so he could drive her home, as was his custom. Dr. Brocci turned the key in the ignition, and a massive explosion ripped the vehicle apart. Its windshield was obliterated, the back window and bonnet were blown out and found dozens of yards away. All four doors were blasted open, so they barely hung on by their hinges, and the car's steel roof was torn and twisted and rolled right back. The road beneath the Plymouth was cratered, and metal shrapnel gouged inches deep holes in a brick wall across the street. The shockwave shook houses, shattered windows, and broke fixtures. People who lived more than a mile away felt the earth tremble. Residents of Patterson Avenue rushed into the street. What was left of the car was burning ferociously. Elsie Foster had been blown from the vehicle and lay crumpled on the road. She was clearly dead. Her shoe and handbag would be found in a neighbour's front garden. Resident Max Schneider and his son Rex were first to reach the wreck. Max would tell the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, The doctor's car was opened up like a sardine tin and flames about four feet high were coming out of the top of it. I knew the car because Dr. Brocci parks it in the same place every day at about the same time. We ran over but could not see anything. Both doors were hung open. Then suddenly I saw an arm. I called to Rex to give me a hand. We both tugged the arm and pulled out the doctor and laid him on the road. He was unconscious but moaned twice. An ambulance arrived and took Dr. Brocci to St. George Hospital, where he'd once worked, and where he now died half an hour after arriving. 100 police descended on the crime scene and surrounding streets. It was immediately clear that the car had been blown to pieces by a bomb rather than as the result of some freak accident. The question was, who'd done it and why? The initial theory was a deranged patient. That was lent credibility by a recent case in Queensland that bore some resemblance to this crime. On the 1st of December 1955 in Brisbane, a disgruntled man named Carl Karst had shot dead two doctors in their surgeries. He'd wounded a third. Another barely escaped with his life. 
Carl Kast had also made a number of bombs that he'd taken to the doctor's surgeries and ignited, one of which detonated and wounded a patient who tried bravely to defuse it. Carl Kast's murderous rampage had come to an end when he'd shot himself and blew himself up with a bomb. Was what had happened in Kingsgrove in Sydney the work of a copycat? No doubt this was discussed by the hundreds of people who flocked to Patterson Avenue, jamming the street until the police and firemen linked arms and walked the road, pushing them back. Among these spectators was a man who'd emerged from a panel van parked nearby. This man, he'd been in the van and he'd watched the explosion. Leaving the crime scene, he drove to St George Hospital, where he inquired about the condition of the bombing victims and learned that they were both most definitely dead. At the crime scene, police turned to explosives expert Mr S Parsons from the Department of Mines. His initial assessment was, quote, This explosion has been caused by about five pounds of gelignite being made into a bomb. The bomb, in my opinion, has been homemade, but it was very efficient. It was obviously placed under the floor, but I am not certain whether it was taped to the bottom of the floor or laid on the ground. He continued, It seems that it was set off by a detonator which was controlled electrically and set in motion when the key of the car was turned in the ignition. Mr Parsons concluded, To make a bomb of this strength and type and to place and to connect it would require considerable knowledge of explosives and also take considerable time. Detectives told the newspaper reporters they wanted to hear from anyone who'd seen anybody interfering with the car that evening. Reporters and photographers rushed back to their offices and telegraph wires hummed so that the story, including graphic pictures of the carnage, would claim front pages across Australia the next day. Before that though, in the dark evening hours after the blast, police had to do solemn duty. Irene Brocci was shattered and bewildered. She told the Argus newspaper, quote, The doctor had no enemies and he had an excellent practice. We have a beautiful home and I cannot for the life of me understand why anybody should want to injure him. When police went to break the news to Elsie's husband Henry, they found he wasn't in the Vivian Street home. It's not clear when a milkman named John Fazari came forward, but it seems likely it was in those first few hours after the explosion. This local said that he'd seen Henry Edward Foster, who he knew from the neighbourhood, wearing a boiler suit near Dr Brocci's Plymouth and near the parked panel van at around 6.15pm. So this was after Dr Brocci had gone into the surgery and an hour before the explosion. Another witness would come forward to say he'd seen a man he later identified as Henry by the Plymouth, its bonnet up, as he worked on the car's engine. Newspaper reports don't make it clear exactly when the police first entered Henry's Vivian Street house. I'm guessing it was overnight. They wouldn't have missed evidence that Henry had taken his evening meal at the dining table and that beside a pot of tea, a book was opened to a page quoting Shakespeare's most famous line from Hamlet. To be or not to be? Right now, though, that wasn't the question. The question was, where was Henry Foster? 
64 years ago today, at 6am on the 14th of August 1956, detectives had their answer when they found Henry Foster inside Dr. Brocci's Kingsgrove surgery. He'd shot himself in the head with a sawn-off 22 caliber rifle that lay beside his body. What had Henry done and why? Before he'd killed himself, he'd written a note directing police back to his house and telling them exactly where they'd find his confession. In Henry's workshop, detectives found explosives, a large amount of cash, scientific and technical volumes, and then controversial sex books such as the Kinsey Report and the outrageous art of King's Cross witch Rosaline Norton. The shed also contained numerous weird gizmos. As the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, one gadget about seven feet high with more than 100 wheels and cogs puzzled mechanical experts who examined it. Police found what they were looking for, letters and notes, including Henry's confession. These writings dated back to the 17th of July. That meant he'd been planning these murders and his suicide for nearly a month and probably much longer than that. What emerged from these letters and from further witness accounts was an utterly chilling sequence of events. Around the time Henry began his writings, an acquaintance named Raymond Cosgrove shared a space with him in a Bondi engineering works, and this man noticed that Henry was fashioning iron caps to fit over the ends of a metal cylinder. Testifying at the subsequent inquest, he said he'd asked old Henry what he was up to. Raymond Cosgrove told the court, quote, he said he was just experimenting. He was always methodical and exact. That's why I think he used the first casing to test a bomb somewhere in the bush. He would make absolutely certain the bomb he was going to use would work properly. When Henry had perfected his bombs, as police would conclude there'd been two of them utilizing black gunpowder, he rigged up a detonating device. Then, he told his trusting brother-in-law, Dr. Brocci, that this device was a gadget that, if fitted to the gearbox of his car, would reduce petrol consumption. Dr. Brocci actually watched on as Henry helpfully attached this invention to the gearbox and ignition of his Plymouth. All that remained was to then attach this to the bombs beneath the car, and Henry did that on the evening of Monday the 13th of August. A neighbour would tell police that he'd seen Henry back at home after that. So the bomber had gone home, had his dinner, opened up that book to the Hamlet quote, and then returned to Patterson Avenue to sit in the panel van and watch his wife and brother-in-law die horribly. Having ensured they were dead at St George Hospital, Henry had then gone to the Kingsgrove surgery and shot himself. The motive for all this mayhem and murder... Police described his letters as the, quote, musings of a madman. Yet, from how he'd planned so meticulously and what was published of his letters in the newspapers during the inquest, it seems highly unlikely Henry would have been deemed insane if he'd lived to stand trial. What was far more probable was that Henry wasn't mad, just bad, a bitter and twisted man who decided to kill himself and take others with him to inflict as much pain as possible on his ultimate enemy. Neighbours would say that Henry and Elsie had been a devoted couple, but over the past two years, he'd become moody. He was angry that they hadn't had children. 
his deafness had become more acute and he griped that no one except Elsie paid him any attention. Nevertheless, neighbours said one of his eccentricities was to remove his hearing aid when they were trying to talk to him. And he'd even pull this move when Elsie was trying to talk to him. In his confession, Henry wrote of his motive, quote, The history is long and very involved, and some of it starts with a big row with Brocci. He claimed that his brother-in-law had treated him incorrectly for a bad back injury and aggravated his condition, and now he couldn't sleep without the aid of pills. This echoed the Carl Cast case, suggesting that Henry might have been in sympathy with the Brisbane murderer and even been inspired by his horrific example. But here's what was really, really awful from Henry's confession. Quote, Nevertheless, the real one aimed at is Mrs. Brocci. Her crime was to apparently have ignored him at a wedding anniversary celebration. So he was going to make her suffer by killing her husband. There was no suggestion he'd tried to kill Mrs. Brocci. Henry had known his wife would be in the car. Elsie had to die because he was going to kill himself and, quote, I am responsible for my dear wife's death. I know she would not desire to live without me. Our love and life together have been so perfect. Few ever attain such perfection as ours. Outrageously, Henry also wrote that blame for the blast should be shared. Quote, I am responsible for placing a device in Ed Brocci's car. He is responsible for igniting it. Henry Foster's letter ended with to be or not to be. And in a last pathetic dramatic flourish, he'd crossed out the first to be. Showing remarkable Christian forgiveness, on Thursday the 18th of August 1956, about 5,000 people attended the triple funeral of Dr. Edward Brocci, his sister Elsie and her murderous husband Henry at the Methodist Church in Hurstville. The three coffins were carried in together, a wreath atop each. If Henry's plan had been to break Irene Brocci, he would have hated what she told the newspapers the next day. Marsha, her eldest daughter, was already studying medicine at Sydney University. Now, her teenage daughters Lynette and Heather, who were at that point students at Burwood Methodist Ladies College, said they intended to do likewise. Irene said they were all dedicated to keeping the art of healing alive in the Brocci family. Quote, I am going to have my husband's practice continued and remain in the district, which is full of friends. I am arranging for another doctor to carry it on temporarily, but one day I hope to see one of my daughters take over the practice. Just over a decade later, in the Sydney Sun-Herald on the 26th of January 1967, there appeared the photo of a smiling woman in her early 20s. The caption read, quote, Dr. Heather Brocci received her Bachelor of Medicine degree at the Great Hall, University of Sydney, yesterday. She is the third daughter of the late Dr. Edward Brocci and Mrs. Brocci of Lane Cove to graduate from medicine from the university. The article noted that Heather's older sisters had graduated several years earlier, with Marsha now practising in Newcastle and Lynette doing likewise in England.
I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on this day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.